Hi, you're listening to Bonus Points, the official podcast of Mr. Astle's Theology Class. Join us as we put out into the deep and explore the world of theology and beyond. Today, we're talking about the Catholic origins of Halloween and how we can reclaim the holiday today. Let's begin. Happy Halloween, and welcome to episode 46 of Bonus Points. Because this episode is coming out on Halloween, I thought it would be a good time to look at this holiday from a Catholic perspective. Very often I hear Catholics and other Christians worry about whether it is appropriate for us to celebrate Halloween. They hear people on the internet talk about how it has pagan roots, and the way that society celebrates it today seems to glorify evil and the occult. So, what is the truth? Does Halloween originate in the pagan festival of Samhain? Can Catholics celebrate it? What we will see is that Halloween actually has Catholic roots, and it's time for us to reclaim an authentic observance of this holiday. But let's back up and talk about the Catholic calendar. Back in Genesis 1, when God was creating the universe, he established time and then divided that time. On the fourth day of creation, when he creates the sun and the moon and the stars, Genesis said that God did that so that they, meaning us, may know the seasons. The Hebrew word for seasons there is moed, which referred to liturgical seasons. So right from the start, we have this idea that time is sacred and that different divisions of time are there to inform the way we worship. Throughout the Old Testament, this develops into different cycles of prayers and feast days. So not only do you have prayers at certain times throughout the day, but you have the Sabbath to punctuate the week. You have different feast days and holidays throughout the year, like Rosh Hashanah, the Day of Atonement. And then on an even larger scale, you have the sabbatical year and the Jubilee years. This way of dividing time develops in the New Testament and the early church as well. So from the earliest days of Christianity, you have the concept of prayers at set times throughout the day, but also special days and seasons throughout the year. So you originally had the Christians praying the Our Father three times a day at at morning, noon, and night. Eventually, this will develop um, into both the Angelus, which we still pray at morning, noon, and night, but also the Liturgy of the Hours, which we talked about back in episode 33. On a larger scale, you see different seasons start to develop, like Easter, and then Lent, Christmas, Advent. But it's not like the apostles sat down in the upper room with a big dry erase calendar and started just making stuff up. The different feast days and seasons that make up the Catholic calendar today developed organically over time, like most things related to the liturgy. The liturgy can't be manufactured It's not a product in a factory. It's not the work of a committee. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. And so what you see with the liturgy, both different elements of the liturgy, like within the Mass, but also the way that the calendar is structured, is more like a tree that's cultivated over the centuries. So where are we going with this? Well, since the early church, there have always been feast days set aside to commemorate martyrs and saints. Typically, this was based on the date of their death, their heavenly birthday, or another date that was important to them, like their natural birthday, or the day they were elected pope, the day their relics were transferred. With very old feast days that originated in the city of Rome, 
It's sometimes based on the day that a church was dedicated in their honor. Now, if you remember our first discussion of the saints back in episodes 12 and 13, you may recall that anybody who's in heaven is a saint, not only those who have been canonized or recognized by the church. This means that there are billions of saints who don't have an ST in front of their name, and so they don't have a feast day on the calendar. Well, for Pope Boniface IV, that was a problem. On May 13, 609, Pope Boniface consecrated the Pantheon as a church in honor of Mary and all the martyrs. The Pantheon had formerly been a pagan temple to all the gods of Rome, and so Pope Boniface baptized it and consecrated it as a Christian church. To commemorate that dedication, he established May 13th as the Feast of All Saints for the city of Rome. He also established the next day, May 14th, as the Commemoration of the Faithful Departed, or All Souls Day, to remember those in purgatory, those not yet in heaven, but who will be some way, someday. In the mid-700s, Pope Gregory III transferred the feasts to November 1st and 2nd, probably to coincide with the dedication of a chapel in St. Peter's Basilica to all the saints. And then finally in 837, Pope Gregory IV added these feast days to the universal calendar so that they would be celebrated by the church worldwide, not just in Rome. What does all of this have to do with Halloween? Well, All Saints Day was also called All Hallows Day, with hallow being another word for sacred or holy. Think like hallowed ground. Like most major solemnities, the celebration actually began the night before, with the vigil of the feast day. This vigil of all saints became known as All Hallows Evening, which was eventually shortened to Hallows Evening and then to Halloween. So sometimes you'll hear people say that the church tried to co-opt the Celtic pagan festival of Samhain, which is celebrated at the end of October. I don't think that evidence lines up, though. The date chosen for All Saints Day was chosen to commemorate the dedication of a chapel in Rome in the 700s. Pope Gregory had probably never even heard of Samhain, so it's unlikely he would dedicate a feast day for the city of Rome to try to co-opt a Celtic pagan holiday that wasn't very prominent in Rome. And in fact, it wasn't added to the universal calendar until quite a bit later. It had already been on November 1st for some time before that. In fact, when Pope Gregory IV added it to the universal calendar, the church in Ireland chose to celebrate All Saints Day on April 20th precisely to avoid any connection with Samhain, which obviously was more of a concern in Ireland than it was in Rome. So, you have All Saints Day on November 1st, this day when we celebrate everybody who's in heaven, and then we have All Souls Day on November 2nd when we commemorate and pray for the holy souls in purgatory. A quick refresher. Purgatory refers to the process of purification that sometimes happens to those who are going to heaven but aren't ready yet at the time they die. It's not a middle ground afterlife for people who are just okay, but it's a final preparation and purification after death. We can help those in purgatory speed their time along by praying for them and asking God to apply the merits of our suffering to them. I'll have a good article in the show notes if you'd like to learn more about purgatory. Anyway, both of these holidays are very focused on the afterlife, and so these three days, the Vigil of All Saints Day, All Saints Day, and All Souls Day, became occasions for us to meditate on death and to remember that our time on earth is finite. 
In fact, the three days collectively became known as Hallowtide, or sometimes even the Triduum of Death. So while it is true that Celtic pagans celebrate Samhain at the end of October, and that Samhain is also a death-focused festival, there's probably no actual connection between that holiday and Halloween. But let's suppose there were. Because occasionally, there is an intentional effort to place Christian holidays near or on the same day as pagan holidays. Would that be a problem? Well, not necessarily. This is a concept known as baptizing pagan things. This was um, a a way of evangelizing that was especially proposed by Pope St. Gregory the Great, who recognized that, you know, there can be good things in other cultures, right? Um, And so as the church is spreading, as the gospel is being spread to different pagan territories, there were customs they had or festivals they had that, while not being Christian, maybe had something in common with Christianity. And so these missionaries could look at these things and recognize that good and then maybe put a twist on it to help it become Christian or to help these people incorporate the gospel into customs they already had. So, for example, in Rome in December, they celebrated the Feast of the Unconquered Sun, or Saturnalia. Well, if we're going to start celebrating Christ's birth at the end of December, it makes sense that we're, we're going to try to line it up with that to say, hey, Rome, let me tell you about the real unconquered sun. Not only the unconquered S-U-N, but also the unconquered sun S-O-N. I also do think there is good evidence to place the birth of Jesus at the end of December. I don't agree with those who say that he must have been born in the spring, but that's probably a topic for a future episode. In any case, this concept of baptizing pagan customs is essentially a way of taking pagan customs and Christianizing them and and incorporating them into the church because the word Catholic means universal, right? And so even though there are there's one faith, the way we practice that faith is going to vary from culture to culture, and sometimes those practices are informed by those cultures. It's a process called enculturation. So I don't think that there's a very strong connection between Samhain and Halloween, but even if there were, I don't know that that would be a deal breaker. So let's talk about some different Halloween customs and maybe where they come from, because Halloween, as it developed in America, is really a mix of a couple different European traditions, because you have, you know, different immigrant groups coming to the U.S., and they're bringing their customs with them. So it ends up as a mix of, yes, some practices from Samhain, but also some practices from Catholic France and Protestant England. And it just becomes, you know, of all the holidays we have that are more distinctly American or or maybe became more prominent in America, I think Halloween is a fantastic melting pot holiday because the different traditions that are now celebrated almost universally by Americans, actually come from a wide variety of background sources in Europe. And they kind of get added in or mixed into the way we celebrate Halloween as these different groups become more prominent in America. So we're going to look at three different Halloween customs. The first one is the idea of wearing costumes. And then we will talk about trick-or-treating. 
And then finally, jack-o'-lanterns. And what we'll see is that at least two of those three, while they may have originated from multiple sources at once, there's also kind of a Catholic background there. So let's start with costumes. If you go way back to the days of the plague, death is on the mind, right? Everybody's focused on death all the time because you're in the midst of the plague. And so different forms of art began to emphasize death. And so there is a particular style of painting or genre of painting. I don't know. Is that the right word for paintings? Genre? Particular kind of painting that became popular called the dance macabre or or like the macabre dance. And these paintings depicted a bunch of people, usually representing a variety of different professions. So you'd have like a bishop and then a farmer and then other professions. But they would all be like in a line dancing their way to death, being led by like a skeleton or the Grim Reaper or something. Because this was a way of of taking this experience of widespread death and destruction and turning it into art. So you had this these paintings where it would show a bunch of different people wearing clothes to represent a bunch of different professions, and they would be, you know, having a good old conga line towards the afterlife. You also, later on, you have this uh, practice of the tableau vivant, which is where people will dress up and act out paintings. And this was a popular kind of painting to do that with. So you would have people dress up as a variety of different professions and backgrounds and states of life and get together and like reenact these paintings, these spooky paintings. And that's one possible origin for why we wear costumes in the context of Halloween. Now, there are other cultures that had some sort of costume-related festivities associated with the end of October. So this is one of those customs where it probably originated in several different places separately and then kind of all came together. But at least one of those origins was a, a distinctly Catholic way of responding to the horrors of the plague. What about trick-or-treating? Again, this one kind of has two different origin stories. Um, I think they're both kind of fun. And so I, I think that that's, that's cool. That's fine. The older one, again, goes back to like maybe the medieval era. And it was a practice called souling. This was a practice that went with All Saints and especially All Souls Day, where kids would go door to door and offer to pray for the dead in exchange for some sort of treat, usually a spiced cake called a soul cake. You can see how that would lead to trick-or-treating, right? Where um, you have kids go door to door and offer to do, or in our case today, not do something in exchange for a reward. Call it bribery, call call it extortion, call it whatever you like, but it works. Another origin story for trick-or-treating goes back to Protestant England in the wake of Guy Fawkes Day. So Guy Fawkes was um, a Catholic extremist who wanted to blow up uh, the parliament and got caught. And so November 5th is celebrated as Guy Fawkes Day, the day that the gunpowder plot was broken, was foiled. And so this is still a big holiday in England, but at least during the height of of the Reformation when it was first, when the holiday first started, it became an opportunity to maybe pick on the Catholics a little bit. And so 
what would happen a lot of the time in some towns was people would get drunk and go to their Catholic neighbors' houses and and knock on the door and demand beer and cake as a way of them making up for what Guy Fox tried to do. And again, you can see kind of the, the origin there. And then these traditions both come together when these these different immigrant groups meet in America, right? And so we have the process of trick-or-treating. Now, trick-or-treating really became popular in the 20th century when pranks became really popular. In fact, as the the process of souling or going door-to-door, as that became popular in America, it was accompanied by pranks. And in early America, this meant things like turning over outhouses, um, taking gates off of fences, disassembling carriages and reassembling them on people's rooftops. So you can see how, especially as cities start to grow, that's going to become a problem. Um, In fact, in cities, it became things like setting fires and breaking windows. By the time you hit the 1920s and 30s, these pranks are just getting entirely out of hand. And so this is where communities start to really emphasize the trick-or-treat. Rather than um, offering cake in exchange for praying for the souls of the dead, communities began giving candy to encourage young people to not destroy their property. And so trick or treat, while today it's, you know, there, there's very little real threat of a trick if you don't give a treat. But back in the day, there certainly was. So a couple different possible origins for trick or treating, but I think they're all kind of fascinating and especially the way it, it came to America. The last one that I want to talk about is jack-o'-lanterns. And this one doesn't have a Catholic origin. This one became part of Halloween as it became associated with um, the Celtic pagan holiday because, again, in Ireland, some of these practices were picked up even by Catholics. So it wasn't that they were celebrating a pagan holiday. It's that the practices associated with that holiday became associated with All Saints Day and All Souls Day because, you know, they overlapped. So this one does not have a Catholic origin the way that you could argue trick-or-treating and costumes do. But it does have a neat story, so we're going to talk about it anyway. There are a million stories about where the jack-o'-lantern comes from. Some of them are more reasonable than others. Some of them are absolutely fantastic. And I mean that in the literal sense of their pure fantasy. But they're still fun stories, and here's one of them. Most of these stories, um, especially this one, uh, have to do with a fellow named Jack. And he's often called Stingy Jack. And Jack was a troublemaker and a trickster. And here's, so here's one story that kind of like explains where the jack-o'-lantern comes from. One night, um, Jack was having a drink with the devil at a pub, as one does. And Jack told the devil, hey, you like sin, right? Especially like theft. Why don't you turn yourself into a coin? And I'll use that coin to pay for my drink. But it's actually you. So I don't actually have to pay for my drink. And the devil said, yes, if you give me your soul. Because every deal with the devil is accompanied by, yes, if you give me your soul. But then, instead of paying for his drink, Jack put the coin in his pocket along with a cross. Now, if you know the devil hates sin, or the devil loves sin, he also hates the cross. And so he was stuck there. He couldn't get out of Jack's pocket. 
And so eventually Jack released the devil in exchange for not taking Jack's soul for 10 years. Personally, if I were Jack, I feel like I had enough leverage there. I probably could have asked for any number of things, but whatever. Um, 10 years later, the devil shows up again, says, all right, Jack, ready to take your soul. But the devil's not like super smart, which we knew already, right? And so Jack says, can I have one more request? And the devil says, sure. And Jack says, I would love to eat an apple before going to my eternal damnation. So can you climb that tree and pick an apple for me? And the devil says, okay, that seems reasonable enough. And then Jack takes a cross and puts it at the base of the tree, this time trapping the devil in the tree. And there's a little bit of maybe poetic irony in that, that Jack has now used an apple to trick the devil. It's kind of a, you know, get some Genesis 3 vibes from that. But anyway, um, Jack tells the devil, I will let you down from this tree in exchange for not taking my soul at all. The devil relents, and so Jack lets him out. Now, eventually, Jack dies, right? And he gets up to heaven, and God says, yeah, no way. And so he, gets, he goes down to hell. But when he gets there, the devil takes one look at him and says, there's no way I'm spending my eternity with this guy. Get out of here. And so Jack, unable to go to heaven, unable to go to hell, uh, is condemned to wander aimlessly for eternity. And so as a parting gift, the devil gives Jack an ember from hell to guide his way to light the path. And as he's walking along, Jack is in pain because carrying an ember is hot. So he takes a turnip and hollows it out and uses the turnip to carry this ember from hell. And this is how the idea of a jack-o'-lantern really started. Because originally it was turnips. Back when it was in Europe, um, you would carve faces into turnips and put lights in them. It comes to America and people start using pumpkins. Because pumpkins are more plentiful than turnips and much easier to carve. So there you go. Um, I don't know how much of that story... Well, I don't want to say based in reality, because I don't think the devil would be making deals like that. But I don't know where that particular story comes from, but it's entertaining at least. So finally, how do we celebrate an authentically Catholic Halloween? If we've been saying this whole time that Catholic has all the, or Catholic, Halloween has all these Catholic roots, that even the name of the holiday, the reason it's where it is in the calendar and many of the customs, if we're saying that there's so much of a Catholic background here, how do we reclaim it? Because it seems that Halloween has been secularized, much like Christmas and Easter have, but that there should still be an authentically Catholic way to celebrate this Catholic holiday, this Eve of all saints. I would like to propose four things to do, if not on Halloween, then in the context of Halloween, All Saints Day, and All Souls Day. Ideally, I mean, maybe all of the above, right? The first thing, and one of the more important things, don't glorify evil and the occult. You know, one of the things that secular Halloween tends to do is it glorifies evil. It glorifies the devil and demons and the occult. And, I mean, people are breaking out Ouija boards at Halloween parties like it's a party game. It's not. It's bad for you. Don't do that. I've said it before. I'll say it again. Don't mess with Ouija boards. So that's step one. 
we can buy into many of the parts of of Halloween. We can listen to Monster Mash. We can go to Halloween parties. But we shouldn't give in to that temptation to glorify that which is evil. You know, we never want to make evil look like good. That's the definition of scandal, first of all. But it also is going to be spiritually problematic, especially if our glorification of evil leads us into the occult. The second thing we can do is to embrace the practice of memento mori. I eventually am going to do a whole episode on this because there's a lot we could say. And I know you're listening to that and you're like, he says that about something in almost every episode. You're right. And I do have a very long list of topics to cover in future episodes. But that just means you'll get to keep listening to this for a while. Anyway, memento mori is Latin for remember death. And this is a practice um, that encourages us to remember that we're going to die. And you say that, and I think for a lot of people, their immediate reaction is, wow, that's morbid and weird. But it's actually, it's healthy. Um, We're not looking to death in a, like, we want to reject life kind of way. We don't think about death as a, well, I don't even want to say as a a thing to look forward to, um, because we do look forward to the afterlife, right? What I mean to say is that when we talk about the memento mori, we're not saying that Catholics have a death wish or anything, and we don't want to be morbid, but it is a fact that you are going to die. Like, that is not negotiable. That is not a possibility in the future. That's going to happen. And there's a way we can be ready for that. You know, when you die, you will go to your judgment, and you will receive an eternal reward or an eternal punishment based on that. So it's kind of a big deal. Memento Mori just helps us to keep that in mind, to keep that in focus. And I think that can, far from making us enjoy life less, I think it actually helps us to appreciate life more because it helps us keep our priorities straight. You know, something that I I've, I try to ask myself, especially on days when I'm stressed or, you know, those little things start to pile up, is sometimes I'll take a step back and I'll look and I will say, how much will this matter on the day of eternity? You know, how much will this matter? Is this even going to come up at my final judgment? And sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes I'm faced with a moral decision. And being aware, having that awareness of death um, makes me realize, hey, this matters right now. This decision that you're about to make, it's going to move your soul (laughs) It's going to move you in a direction, and that's either going to be good or bad, and that's entirely up to you right now. Like, every decision we make, every moral decision is moving us either towards eternal happiness or eternal suffering, and that means that our choices matter, our choices are significant, right? That it's not just an arbitrary, like, nothing matters, I can do whatever I want. Your choices make a difference. And when we keep that in mind that, you know, one day I will be dead. (laughs) One day nobody will remember me. One day the only thing I will have is eternal happiness or eternal punishment. And the decisions that I'm making today are contributing to that. That's going to help me to prioritize. That's going to help me make decisions. That's going to help me keep in mind the importance of living well. And so there are different ways to live out the memento mori devotion, but a very common one is to keep an image of a skull somewhere. Um, I would love to get like a skull for my desk. That's like 
I know my desk already has a whole bunch of, like I'm looking at it now, it's got lots of stuff on it, but I want to get a skull to go on my desk just to be that constant reminder to say, hey, how much is this going to matter in a hundred years when you're not around anymore? Um, and sometimes that answer is a lot, but many times the answer is it doesn't, it's fine. You know, don't, don't make this the priority. Another thing we can do, especially for All Saints Day, is to pray the litany of the saints. You know, the saints are looking out for us, they're interceding for us, they're praying for us, they're role models for us, and the litany of the saints is a very easy way to cultivate that devotion, because it, you know, sometimes, at least for me, I I get a little bit stressed thinking, if I'm focusing on this saint, am I neglecting other saints, or, you know, I know that that's coming out as like, hey, you're crazy, maybe. But the Litany of the Saints, it, it just asks all the intercession. And as we go through the list of names, you know, if you know a little bit about even just some of them, uh, you're going to have all these these models of the faith standing in front of you, praying for you. It's a beautiful prayer. I love it a lot. There's a reason we pray it at your baptism. There's a reason we sing it at ordinations. So, memento mori, pray the Litany of the Saints, and finally pray for the dead, right? Our prayers can help those in purgatory especially during the month of November, this month dedicated to those holy souls, we can be offering the sufferings of the day. We can offer those up to God for those souls to help them uh, to speed their time along. We can visit a graveyard and pray for the dead there. You know, how many people die and, and nobody prays for them, right? And nobody is Maybe like even at their funeral, they're not being prayed for. It's just a vague like, oh, we're going to celebrate their life. No, I want you to pray for me when I die. I want you to to ask God to help me get through purgatory. Um, I want you to pray for my eternal rest, right? And so this is something we can do, especially on All Souls Day, is to pray for those people. We can pray. It's a short prayer. Um, I try to say it every time I drive past a, a cemetery or something like that. But we can just pray, eternal rest grant unto them, O Lord, and let perpetual light shine upon them. May their souls and the souls of all the faithful departed, through the mercy of God, rest in peace. Amen. Well, that's going to do it for today's episode. Happy Halloween again. A few resources I want to offer you this time. There will be an article about All Saints Day and how it came to be, how it got on the calendar where it is. I'm including an article about purgatory if you do want to know a little bit more about what Catholics believe and why. A few articles about Halloween and Catholicism. Um, It's going to be hard to tell the difference between them because a lot of them said the same things or there was some overlap. I'm including an article about the history of some Halloween practices that was actually written by one of the history teachers that I knew when I was a student teacher. Um, He just started a weekly newsletter. This was the most recent one. And then I'm going to include a link to some resources about the Memento Mori devotion, specifically from one of the daughters of St. Paul who has really done a lot to popularize this devotion. I hope you check out her stuff. But for right now, that's all we have for today's episode. I'm Mr. Astle. Thank you for joining us once again as we put out into the deep to explore the world of theology and beyond. Oh, and make sure you subscribe. Subscribe.